All right, go to, if you will, Ezekiel 18. Now, let me, let me kind of warn you. Karen, maybe you can help us remember this. We're going to finish this study over the next two Sundays. So um, we'll be in Zechariah 7 next week and in Micah 3, I'm sorry, and in Malachi 3 the following week. So if you kind of want to read ahead, those little books you can read, you know, while you're eating your cereal at breakfast. So um, um, that won't be too hard. Now, um, a young man was seen at the mall um, with a t-shirt on, okay, the t-shirt, you know, uh, much of life's philosophy can be read on the front or the back of a t-shirt these days, right? <laughs> How things have changed. But uh, this young man had, was at the mall with a t-shirt that was probably kind of the philosophy of his life. It simply said, blame my parents. Um, this is a commentary on our culture. Now, it's also, I think, if we, if we could say it, a commentary on the, the, the culture in Ezekiel's day. Let me give you a little bit of background. The slogan on the kid's t-shirt proposes that he isn't responsible for who he is. He isn't responsible for what he does. What a miserable condition would it be if this were really true? Uh, but the young man's t-shirt expresses a popular view today that our bad behavior is not our fault. Now, although probably there was no debate in Ezekiel's day over the nature versus nurture conversation, all right, they were still kind of dealing with this. They found comfort by passing the blame back on their ancestors. And they did so in the form of a proverb that Ezekiel is going to actually kind of condemn in our passage today. Now let's talk a little bit about Ezekiel. He was a preacher. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. So he was, at, at the same time, he was working, doing his work as, at the time that Jeremiah was, um, during and after the final chaotic years of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, when he began uh, his uh, prophetic work, King Jehoiakim um, was in place. Um, his reign ended about 597 B.C., and he was succeeded by his son, Jehoiakim. Now, if, as if the Bible isn't confusing enough, you got guys with one letter different, and that Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim were a father and son, kings in Judah. Jehoiakim, the son, only reigned for three months in Jerusalem, and the, Babylons, uh, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and took him along with thousands of the most prominent and skilled and smart people of Judah to Babylon. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24. That group of people that were deported included the prophet Ezekiel. So he's living and doing his work in, um, in Babylon. Now it's interesting um, while there the Babylonians placed Zedekiah who was Jehoiakim's uncle on the throne of Jerusalem to implement the will of the Babylonian government. Zedekiah eventually conspires with other nations to revolt, but he didn't succeed. And so the rebellion was put down and Jerusalem was destroyed in the temple. And the temple was also destroyed in about 586 BC. Now, so here is Ezekiel's plight. While Jeremiah was preaching in Jerusalem before its destruction... And that wasn't exactly a walk in the park either, guys. I mean, he got to stay home, but it wasn't a good time to be home, all right? Ezekiel's in Babylon 
warning of the same things and he's ministering to a people who've been torn from the land that God had promised them. You ever been away from home and just mad about it? Away from the temple where he promised, where God promised his presence to be, away from all that was familiar. And as they pondered and grieved their situation, they began to kind of think, what got us here? And that's kind of where we pick up today. Um, now, I want us to read the first four verses. Bob, would you do that? And then I want us to do a little exercise. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean, what do you Okay, I'm going to stop right there as, as Ezekiel begins to deal with a popular proverb. Now, I want to share with you, I want to start several proverbs, and I want you to finish them for me, okay? You ready? Because I think you can. Ready? A stitch in time. Okay, see, you know that, right? Um, waste not. Got it? All right. A penny saved. See, is it, everybody kind of knows these, all right? Uh, by the way, there are certain groups of people that you would have no hearing. The, the people that worship in the, uh, in the venue probably don't know any of these, okay? <laughs> I, I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying that's a whole different group. Um, early to bed and early to rise. So you know them. By the way, a lot of these come from Ben Franklin, I think, from Paul, Paul Richard's Almanac. Uh, some of them are kind of quoted like they're biblical sometimes, you know. But, but that's kind of the deal. Uh, my uncle used to say, a lady who wears a paper dress shouldn't sit near a fireplace. I mean, that was his. <laughs> but that, you'd have to know my uncle to appreciate that, okay? Uh, uh, so don't quote that one, though. You don't want to learn that one. I, now, so a, a proverb then in this case is a short kind of, uh, what I read somewhere is called a pithy statement. Um, used to express a general truth in a very memorable way. And we illustrated that just a second ago, didn't we? You remember all these. Anybody got another one you want to add? <laughs> that was good. You hear that man who lives in a glass house should dress in the basement. Yeah. That's not the version of it that I've always heard, but that's good, Steve. Well, so th these short, memorable statements, right, uh, ex expressing a general truth. Now, what we're dealing with here is a very, you can put the word popular in the first blank on your page, a very popular proverb in the day. Now, I want you, and we're going to put this thing in a historical perspective. Go to 8-1. We're in, we're in Ezekiel 18, but we're going to duck back just for a second to 8-1. It's going to tell us when this is. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Okay? Now, go to 20, verse 1. Okay? So we're going to go past our text for today by a page. Now, in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. So, there... They have been in captivity in Babylon for how long? At least. 
six or seven years. Okay? Sixth year, seventh year, certain month. And they're not real happy about it. So as they're sitting around musing about what got us here, okay? We don't ever do that, right? We don't, we don't ever read the paper or, or watch uh, some news program and say, how did we get here? That's what they're doing. And they, they begin to quote a very popular proverb. And the proverb goes like this. The fathers have eaten sour grapes. And what happened? The children's teeth are set on edge. Now, quoting that, and it interestingly brings them a little bit of comfort um, uh, the, to, to say that. The proverb um, uh, is actually, go with me to Jeremiah. It's going to be back to the left, not too far. Jeremiah 31. It's also quoted in Jeremiah. So there must have been, people must have been saying this to each other a lot. It was being said in Jerusalem where Jeremiah was. It's being said in Babylon where, the, where, um, where, the rest of the, where all these exiles were. Look at Jeremiah 31, 29. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So... It's, it's coming. In fact, if you notice, they quote it the same way, so it's kind of like a stitch in time saves nine. I mean, it, it, they say it just the same way, and they're saying it not only in Jerusalem, but they're saying it in Babylon, and both of them are saying, what got us here? What's the problem here? And they quote this proverb as an answer. They're quoting this proverb as an answer. So the idea is... Um, what's it? Tell me, what's its message? What's it saying? It's not my fault. My misery is somebody else's fault. In particular, they're saying, my misery is the fault of the former generations. Mom and dad's fault. It's grandma and grandpa's fault. Okay. I just find this really intriguing that Ezekiel here and Jeremiah both go after it. It's being said that often. It is at the end of, um, you know, um, when they were watching Fox News Jerusalem, okay, they would report on something terrible going on over in Babylon and they'd say, but, you know, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I mean, that's, and, and this is Peter Jennings, good night. I mean, you know, that, it was the way to explain the problems that they had. Now, I find this really interesting and intriguing because, this, you know, kind of whatever goes around comes around. We haven't really changed much to a degree, right? Uh, so, now the truth is, um, the proverb itself has a little bit of truth to it. Okay? Um, pray for me in the next couple of minutes as I, as I dance gingerly over this, okay? Because the proverb itself has a little bit of truth to it. Um, um, would somebody go right in the middle of the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, verse 5. Somebody find that? We're going to need that. It's kind of some backdrop. Um, I'm going to go, if you'll stay with me in chapter 18... 
Let's go down to verse 25. And then we'll get to, to Exodus in just a minute. You say the way the Lord is not right. Hear now, house of Israel. Is my way not right? Is, your way, is, it your, is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for the iniquity with which he is committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? He's going to say that a couple of times here. Kind of quoting God, reasoning back to this sour grapes experience. Did somebody get Exodus 20 verse 5? There is an effect that God is describing here. It, it could be called, I think I wrote in my notes, intergenerational consequence. We've occasionally seen it, probably haven't we? An intergenerational consequence. It is um, that the fact that the sins of a generation do sometimes have a lasting effect on the next. Am I right? Okay, but is in that is God being unjust? That's the question. Um, what are the intergenerational consequences of the sin of idolatry, for instance, that Miriam just read about? That the sin of idolatry is going to have a, a, a kind of a, a putrefying effect on generations to come. It's going to have a, a degenerative effect on, on lots of those to come. And God's warning them about it. Don't do this because it's, it's going to have this kind of a devastating effect in your life. But God is promising, and we can get to that in verse 4, God is promising that he, it, he will and always has dealt with people as individuals. Okay? And we're going to look at some illustration of it here. Now, Cindy, I think I asked you to go to Deuteronomy and kind of be our Deuteronomy scholar today. Would you read 2416? Okay. Now, that is just, isn't it? Whether we like the consequence or not, the Bible is being very clear here that the issue of the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge is not a fair proverb when dealing with God. Each of us is going to have to deal with our own sin. Now, my question is, as we kind of move up before we move on to verse 5, is what is kind of your sour grapes theology? What is, there, is there a sour grapes theology in your life that kind of has a tendency to come out in a, in a tough time. That's what's happening here. Uh, now, when I, when I mentioned that, I remember that Aesop was a legendary Greek slave who may have lived between 620 and 560 B.C., interestingly, about the same time 
a similar time. Fables are attributed to him that live on to this day. One of them is the fable of the fox and the grapes. Remember that? Okay. It tells of a fox that wants grapes he sees growing on a vine high above him, but he can't reach them, and he eventually walks away and says, those grapes are probably sour anyway. Okay, what is my sour grapes theology? We all speak of sour grapes, don't we? That, it's just sour grapes. Um, when a person expresses disdain for something that would like to have but can't possess. Um, somebody uh, wants, um, uh, envies another person's expensive sports car and they uh, feign lack of desire by saying, oh, it only holds two people and probably gets horrible gas mileage. I admit it's really uncomfortable and I'm not sure my back would let me get down in a car that little anyway. <laughs> Sour grapes, right? <laughs> you know why you're laughing at that because you've probably done that. <laughs> but the sour grapes that Ezekiel spoke about had a different context, a context of blaming or shifting blame to avoid accountability for my own sin. They're both self-delusional, aren't they? I think so. So I've got to kind of deal with what my sour grapes theology is. And if I ever get to the point where I'm looking at the consequences in my life that I've created and say, well, it's not really my fault. I've got a little bit of this sour grapes theology going on within me. Okay? Now, we're going to start with verse 5. I'm going to warn you, it's PG-13. Okay? Bob, you're a big enough boy to read this, but go 5 down. Huh? Yeah. By the way, Bob and I had a little conversation earlier. I, uh, I was in a place where I couldn't get Wi-Fi yesterday, and I was trying to do my devotional reading on my iPad, and I had to read the, the King Jimmy. Had to read King James. You ought to do that every once in a while Amen. just to get, see if you still understand the doth <laughs> and the thous, you know, and how they fit in. There were a couple of words that I just giggled. I was, uh, turned around and said, that's the way this says it. Because it was in the Gospels, but it, you know, used funny words. Go to five through nine. stuff by helping us laugh through the latter stuff. That was good. All right. The issue here is an issue of whether or not I'm living righteously. And I want to define here, uh, he's going to begin at least, by defining righteousness. And I think this is the crux of it. Defining righteous by 
having an appropriate heart for, here's the word you put in the blank, ready? Worship. It has something to do with whom or what you worship. And it's going to emanate from that heart. Now, Cindy, I'm gonna, can I get you to go back to Deuteronomy, 20, uh, Deuteronomy um, 12 and then 5, and you can read them in whichever order you'd like. So, um, Deuteronomy 12, verse 13 and 14. Let me let me stop off there just long enough to say when when um, when Ezekiel is is kind of sharing God's word here and he talks about uh, going to the mountain shrine to worship. Okay, he's saying there are places that God has designated for appropriate sacrifice and worship, and that ain't one of them, and you know it. Okay, now five, seven, and eight. Okay, so there are two principles at work here regarding the righteous person who worships appropriately. One of them is you're not going to worship any other God, small g, and you're not going to do the worship, whatever it is you're doing, you're not going to do that in a place that I haven't designated appropriate for that. Um, It's kind of important here. And, you know, I began to think about this a little bit um, as I was kind of finishing this up. uh, the principle that I'm kind of thinking about here, and I'm going to use a kind of a weak expression, but I'll explain it. The, the issue was here that they were to stay religiously pure. Okay? Or spiritually or worshipfully pure. Now, I want to use kind of unpack that word religiously because there's nothing wrong with religion. Um, I'm not sure I, I want to be, you know, when, when you guys say hopefully a couple of nice things over my grave, hopefully you won't say he was very religious. That doesn't really appeal to me. Um, Okay? I want you to say, wow, he really loved Jesus. Okay? That's that's a very different deal. But but in, in this context, to stay religiously pure means there are some things that are that are bottom line that I've got to kind of make as as non negotiables in my life. And I'm going to take a kind of a walk on the wild side here for just a second. But when you and I think of the legacy of King David, okay, lived before this day that we're dealing with, and they they were still thinking the greatest day in ever in the history of the nation of Israel was the day of King David. They probably still think that today. Jewish folks who continue to worship in that way. Uh, you and I, when we think of David's life, we've read the whole book, right? We haven't just read the good part. And I find it interesting that in Acts 15, he's considered a hero of faith. Um, uh, he's considered, they would talk about, um, uh, names him there as a man after God's own heart, right? In Acts 15. And I want to think, but yeah, but didn't you read the rest of it? What'd you do with 2 Samuel 12? You know what I mean? Okay. Well, the truth is, one of the places where David never compromised was in the issue that Ezekiel's talking about here. David never bowed his knee to another God, small g. Never. I, I defy you to find a place. He did a lot of things that you and I wouldn't want told about us, okay? All right? But 
He never compromised in worship. Guess what? About everybody that came after him did. There were only a few who didn't, including his son Solomon, who was considered this paragon of wisdom and yet built shrines in places for other gods for his wives to worship. Okay? Come on. He compromised. David never compromised in terms of what Ezekiel's talking about here, the issue of worship. And it has, if, if I'm going to compromise in that one, I'm going to have, there's going to be other fallout from it. And he begins to talk about it in, in kind of graphic language that Bob had to read a little bit ago. But it's kind of this idea that my righteousness here is defined by appropriate worship. It begins there, kind of ends there. And then it moves toward, in verse 7 and 8, that the right, righteous person also demonstrates godly love toward others. Now, um, and it talks about several things. It begins by talking about, interesting, I find this interesting, the return of collateral. Did you catch that? It's, okay, I've taken something as a pledge. You loan me some money. I've taken something as a pledge. And then I've, I've won't give it back. Don't do that. Okay, this is part of how it's kind of defined there. Uh, it talks about robbery. It talks about feeding the hungry and the naked. And it interestingly um, mentions usury here. What's usury? High interest rate, yeah. yeah. In fact, the idea was literally uh, uh, the Jewish person, if, if you're in hard times and need to borrow money, you were to loan it to them Without interest, okay? But certainly not at exorbitant interest rates, okay? So it's got all those things that are kind of defining there or helping us define how um, my love toward God works its way out in loving others or in treating others right. If, 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 I, could, um, if I could deal with it, I'm thinking it's, it's dealing, uh, well, look at, look at verse nine just real quickly. If he walks in my statutes and my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live. Um, the word walk is the same as dealing faith, faithfully. The word statutes and ordinances kind of parallel. So we've got this Hebrew parallel, parallelism here that is saying, if you'll do this, you will surely live. So the idea is um, uh, just do the right thing. Do the right thing. I wrote in a card to Pete this week how helpful it is to me right now to watch how a righteous man loves his wife after 60-some years. He's got a really hard road to hoe right now. And I'm watching him do over and over and over and over again the right thing. The vow he took a long time ago still counts. And over and over and over again every day, constantly. I, I, if I could describe his new normal to you, you wouldn't like it. And he doesn't like it. But he's still committed to doing the right thing. I think it's important here. And I, th I think Ezekiel's saying um, it's important what you're committed to. And it goes back to who you choose to worship and how you choose to worship. Okay, let's read 
couple more verses here. So um, it's going to say kind of who dies. Let's start with verse 10. Uh, then he may have a violent son. He gives an illustration here. He, the person who's claiming this, may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, even he eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, and commits robbery and doesn't restore a pledge and lifts up his eyes to idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He's committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. In kind of a reverse example here, or you could call it a counterexample. The wicked son is the exact opposite of his father. You catching this? The wicked son is the exact opposite of his father. The son has the freedom to choose what type of man he will be. But he's going to be solely responsible for the path he chooses, whether a good one or a bad one. It's kind of the thought here. And he gives these kind of examples here that indicate the fallacy of the thinking of these exiles. What are the certain... Look at verse 14. I find verse 14 really intriguing. I wish we had time to go further with 14 to 20. We're going to skip those, but look at this. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. See that counterexample? I love that. And I've seen it in the lives of lots of people in our day who will say, you know what? I'm just going to give one illustration. It's the one that comes to mind. My dad was a raging alcoholic. I could have gone that way, but I made a decision early on to do everything I could to go a different way. And literally, observing that counterexample saved the younger man's life. Uh, how many of us have said, uh, I, I think in my, uh, I talked last week to a, to a cousin who, who was more like a nephew to me, and uh, what I recognize is though his dad left his mom when he was a little boy, he had a grandpa that led the life in front of him. And it made all the difference in the world. And he, Jeff is who Jeff is because of my Uncle Rab. Not because of, not because of what his dad, the pattern he left for him because it wasn't a good one. Okay? It's, ultimately though, it's up to you. It's up to us. And what I want to say for us dads as we kind of deal with some of this stuff and, and with our sons or with our daughters Moms with daughters too. Intergenerational sin can stop with me. Can I say that again? Intergenerational sin can stop with me. I can make a, a, a determination in my life that's going to stop in my generation. Now, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Somebody read 30 down through 32 and we'll, we'll close it. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. 
This is really kind of beautiful. God is reminding us that he alone will be the judge. He alone is going to be the judge. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a really good thing. You don't want me being the judge because I get kind of cranky occasionally, okay? You don't want me being the judge. I don't want anybody else on this planet to be the judge. I want the judge to be the Lord. He alone will be the judge. I read a story this week about a New York Columbo, um, a member of the New York Columbo Crime Syndicate. His name was Michael Franzesi, and he created fraudulent schemes that brought him millions of dollars. Um, Franzesi eventually got involved in the movie business, and on a movie set in 1984, he met a dancer named Cami Garcia. He was attracted to her because she seemed different from others he met in the industry. Cammie didn't know what kind of business Michael was in, but she started talking to him about God and love blossomed and Michael and Cammie were married in 1985, but that was the year that the law caught up with Michael. He spent 43 months in prison and although having accepted Jesus as Savior just before the marriage, it took a lot of time for Michael to realize his need for a radical life change. It was during a second incarceration, a 29-month one for violating parole that he says, I ate and I drank and I slept the Bible. Since released from prison in 1994, he's become a Christian motivational speaker. He had to learn. I got to change my way of doing things, and I got to allow the Holy Spirit to operate that in me. And I got to, you and I got to remember not only that God alone will be the judge, but as in Michael's story, he takes no delight in dispensing punishment. God takes no delight in dispensing punishment. Did you read it there? I love the way it says it here in verse 31 and 32. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from all you all your transgressions which you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore repent and live. God takes no delight in dispensing punishment. In fact, he invites the sinner to repent. I began to think about, oh, by the way, what goes in the blank, he's the judge, he will forgive. I began to think about, Joe, you and I were talking about a song earlier today. I began to think about a song that I played on my horn and then I would also sing. And I'd sing and then play. I wasn't really a one-man band, it was just the way it turned out. It was written by Ralph Carmichael in the 70s. And I can still remember every word to it. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why won't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? Time after time he's waited before and now he's waiting again. To see that you're willing to open the door. Why? Why? Don't you let him come in? You see, that's, you know, the God on the old Warner Solomon painting Standing at the door and knocking. Have you seen that old painting? But there's no handle on that side of the door. There's no knob on that side of the door. It's on the inside where you and I have to open up and let him in. But the truth is that he is forgiving and he will heal. I love the thought that he leaves here with us. That God wants to do surgery in my life and give me not only a new heart, but a new mind. Can I tell you something? 
There's no self-help book that can do that for you. Only He can heal. That's the last word that goes in the last blank, the word heal. God will judge, but He also forgives, and He will heal you. Okay, we're going to be in Zechariah 7 next week. If you can find it, you got seven days to find it. Okay, <laughs> See you there. <laughs>